This is a Federal News Network podcast. Cyber talent is coming into the Biden administration. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is one step closer to getting a permanent director. And the White House is about to get its first national cyber director. They'll get support from Biden's pick to run the General Services Administration, who's committed to making federal networks more resilient. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the roundup. Jory, these names have been on the docket for some time. Just review who they are again for us. The three nominees that the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee heard from last week, just to run through those, we have Jen Easterly, who, if confirmed, would be the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. All of these nominees really have pretty extensive resumes in the cyber world. But as far as the bullet points that we care about here, Easterly, she was part of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. She served on their cyber red team for penetration testing and things of that nature. She also had a role in standing up the Army's first cyber battalion. If confirmed, she would really be taking the reins of CISA at a pretty critical time where the agency is getting more capabilities, threat hunting on agency networks, and really taking over some pretty big responsibilities just across the federal cyber ecosystem. Next, we have Chris Inglis, who is the former deputy director of the National Security Agency. He would be taking on a brand new job as the national cyber director and would work within the White House with some pretty important people and Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. We also have Robin Carnahan, who is the administration's pick to run the General Services Administration. And, you know, she would play a supporting role in what Inglis and Easterly would be doing in terms of making sure that barred vendors, your Huawei's and Kaspersky's, don't make their way and get plugged into federal networks. All right. So then the question becomes, what about overlap and kind of turf battles? Because that can happen when you have a lot of high-level people chasing after the same sort of submission here, in this case, cybersecurity. Yeah, there's a growing portfolio of people whose job is cyber these days. And the real importance here is making sure that they aren't tripping on each other's toes. One analogy that has really kind of gained some momentum here is saying that CISA would be the quarterback of the federal cyber team and the national cyber director would be basically the head coach. And that makes it seem pretty simple, right? Everyone can understand that. But we heard from Senator Rob Portman on the committee, and he kind of pushed back on the analogy and actually extended it a little bit more and said, well, where does that leave the federal CISO? Is he the running back on the team? And is Ann Newberger the the linebacker? He really kind of made a joking point, but a, a clear point in just saying, hey, look, if everyone says they're in charge here, no one's in charge, and there needs to be a real coordination of effort here. To that point, Easterly did say that CISA is really the lead agency in terms of responding to private sector cyber incidents. And she said that if other agencies fall in line and recognize that, that there would be uh, less of a duplication of efforts. I know sometimes when there is a threat stream uh, or a vulnerability, there will be uh, multiple outreach from different agencies. And I think it's incredibly important that the government is able to speak with one voice and that there is coordination across the board. And what did Inglis have to say about it? From his perch, if confirmed, Inglis says that he would be able to really identify any gaps in the administration's cyber response, would be able to take that zoomed out look and see how all these pieces are working together. And his big priority, his big goal here is just making sure that the federal cyber response is greater than the sum of its parts. I think that the premise for us within the United States and like-minded nations must increasingly be 
that if you're an adversary in this space, you have to beat all of us to beat one of us. The National Cyber Director needs to make that true. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And what about the cyber workforce? Because there's a lot of talk about the technology and the defenses and the setups and the bureaucracy around cybersecurity. What about that workforce? Did that come up in these hearings? It did. You know, we've been talking so much about the cyber leadership, but the rank and file are really the ones who are getting this done on a daily basis. And so there's a couple of lines of effort going on here. Uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is going through a cyber sprint of sorts. And so they're trying to bring on in the next 60 days you know, a considerable amount of cyber employees. And also there's some efforts in Congress here that were discussed at this hearing the Civilian Cyber Security Reserve Act, uh, that would really give DHS and DOD the ability to tap into a reserve capacity of former feds and military service personnel to lend a hand in cases where they need that additional cyber manpower. On that legislation, Easterly did kind of support the idea. And more generally, she said that just more needs to be done to build a career path when it comes to cyber within the federal workforce. Leaders need to create a culture that uh, prize collaboration and innovation and inclusion uh, and ownership and empowerment. A good culture is key to being able to attract the best talent. Second, you have to look at this not as a one-off position, but as part of a talent ecosystem from recruiting to onboarding to integration. All right. Well, all great words, but let's see if they can really make it happen. And what about GSA? What does Carnahan say she'd like to do there in cyber? Right. So on the IT side of things, she said that the pandemic has really illustrated the importance, but also the fragility of agency digital infrastructure. The trillions of dollars that made it through these IT systems and out to the public She said that that's going to be a big focus of hers, making sure that these networks are resilient and able to handle this increased bandwidth. It helps that the Technology Modernization Fund does have that billion dollars to it, and that gives her some ammunition to work with here. But she also pointed out that expanded telework under this environment is likely going to be something that's going to stick around in some capacity, even after the pandemic. And she opened the door to that being a way that GSA can shrink the federal real estate portfolio, which is something that has been going on for multiple administrations now. Pandemic changed the way all of us did business um, and really is going to, I'm sure, cause agencies to be rethinking how they want longer term to implement remote work and what the options are And that's going to impact their physical space needs. Yeah, that's kind of typical of the way the Biden administration is approaching different policies. They tie cybersecurity to the federal real estate footprint and to telework policy. And we saw this in the very complicated memo that came out last week about returning to the federal office. It was it's going to take five or six readings and a pencil and paper and maybe a spreadsheet for agencies to figure out what they've actually got to do here to get people back. But so Robin Carnahan seems to be of that mind. What comes next? I guess the confirmation votes. Yeah, well, we're going to wait and see how the committee votes on these nominations. We saw some bipartisan support for all three. Meanwhile, we're going to wait and see until this crosses the finish line over the Senate. But I think by all accounts, there's no expectation that these are going to be nominees that will be hard to see confirmed. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, 
Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally 
was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees 
not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.